0: I am a verse-by-verse preacher, and I'm going to disappoint you today. I'm doing a topical sermon, (laughs) so I don't think we'll have anybody stand while I read, because my text really is from Genesis to Revelation, so no, it's not that bad. (laughs) So I'm not used to doing this, so this is going to be kind of a learning curve for me. It took me all week to do a PowerPoint. So So, this morning, I want to just share with you some reasons that you and I can believe in God. I know I'm speaking to the choir. I'm speaking to people who believe in God. But I hope you will take this message today, and it will instill you with confidence and boldness... To share your faith unashamedly. In a current poll, 75% of Americans at one time confessed that they had a belief in God. Those numbers are at a record low. Tracy and I served as missionaries in Ireland from 1999 to 2009. And in 2019, 10 years later, after we'd left, Ireland was the fourth largest country in Europe for atheism. And when we went, 95% of the country believed in God. What's happening to our world? It's our education system. Our education system... Has kicked God out of the school. The Bible is no longer a textbook where it once was in America. Our kids are taught from the time that they begin school that you are the product of random chance. We've never seen an escalation of crime in America that we have seen in this last generation. I never thought as a young child, that students could go to school, talk to a guidance counselor without the consent of a parent, and decide to have their gender changed. We're living in drastic times in our country, and we as believers need to be able to defend our faith. We need to be equipped with logical reasons but unashamedly proclaim God's word as our source of authority the bible is the most published book in the world it has transformed civilizations the western culture largely dues largely owes its documents to a foundation in Judeo-Christian beliefs. We have shifted so far today, that as Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 5, that good is considered evil, and evil is considered good. So I want to equip you this morning with five reasons why you can believe in God. So our first I'm going to mention, and I'm going to go through these really quickly until I get to the life and resurrection of Christ. So I don't have any notes for you to write down or papers for you to do, but young people, I'm going to teach this again when Jordan's out of town, so I'm going to give it to you in, in great greater depth, So, and I'm going to give you a test on it too, Samantha. <laughs> so I'm going to try to use this thing, but I don't really need to. Well, it might help if I turned it on, so this is a really... Uh, new for me, so, okay, there we go, the origin of the universe, fine-tuning of our world, objective moral values, life and resurrection of Christ, and your personal experience, but before we do, I do want to give it a biblical um, context, and so, as a person who loves expository teaching, I am going to use 1 Peter as a sort of a springboard for my topic today, but in First Peter, Peter wrote this epistle largely to Jewish Christians in the first century who were under severe persecution for their faith. The book of First Peter mentions persecution more than any other book in the New Testament. It's a very, very Jewish book as well. Out of all of the epistles, all the letters that are found in the New Testament, Peter quotes more Old Testament references than any other book of the Bible. So he's writing to the elect. That is a technical term for the Jewish people. They considered themselves as the elect people of God. They considered themselves a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people to proclaim the praises of God. So God had selected one nation in the Old Testament to bring his message to the world and to bring the Messiah to the world. That's why Israel was elect. So Paul, I mean, sorry, Most of the letters in the New Testament are written by Paul, but this is Peter. Peter writing to the elect. Then he says, to the strangers, that was another very Jewish term. The Jewish people looked at themselves as sojourners. None of the patriarchs had a permanent dwelling. And so writing to these people, they saw themselves as sojourners. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, I beseech you, therefore, as pilgrims and sojourners, we are here for simply a temporary stay. Hallelujah for that. This place is not my home. It's not your home. This is a rabbit, and I run a lot of rabbits, so guys, get ready for some rabbit trails. But John 14 says, says this, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, where you go we do not know. And how, how are we going to get there? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is preparing a place for you and I in heaven. We are pilgrims, we are sojourners, this is not our home. Peter goes on to say, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. So he's writing to a Jewish audience. They were under severe persecution for their faith. They were persecuted by their Jewish brethren who did not accept Yeshua or Jesus. He actually, that's a Greek name. His Hebrew name is Yahshua, which means Savior, Deliverer. They did not accept him as their Messiah. So the Jewish people persecuted the Christian Jew. They were persecuted by the Romans because the Romans called Caesar God and King, and the Christians refused to do that. They were persecuted by the Gentiles who had a pantheon of gods. And so these people were under severe persecution. And so Peter is writing this letter to encourage them. And he starts out with a very Hebrew blessing. The Hebrews would often start a blessing and follow it by a relative clause that would define who God is. We're familiar with many of the Psalms, and that's the way the Psalms were written. I'll quote just a little bit of Psalm 103 to give you a flavor of the way the Jews would write their eulogies. That's the Greek word for blessing. Blessed. May God be blessed, it says in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless His holy name. And then it gives all these relative clauses that describe God who forgives all of our iniquities, who heals all of our diseases, who renews our strength like the eagles, and it just goes, who, 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 elaborating on who God is. And so Peter, writing this to his Jewish brethren, who are scattered all over Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all over the Roman Empire, they were dispersed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he starts out by saying, Blessed be God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins his relative pronouns, who, according to his abundant mercy, who has begotten us again, made us alive again, unto a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, Fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, ready to be revealed unto salvation at the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season you are grieved through manifold trials, knowing that the trying of your faith, which is much more precious than gold that perish, be found of praise and honor and glory. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. What an introduction to a letter. The key phrase in all of that is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is why God is to be blessed, because his abundant mercy was poured out on Calvary. We have a living hope because Christ is raised from the dead. We have an eternal inheritance because Christ was raised from the dead. We are kept. We are guarded. We are shielded by the power of God because Christ was raised from the dead. I want to contrast that with 20th century philosophers. Several of them, I don't know how to pronounce these names, Somerset Magham, maybe my English teacher back here, he may be maybe familiar with, he was an English playwright and a novelist. He was one of the most famous British authors of the 20th century. He was an agnostic, borderline atheist, and in his summing up of all of his life works, in fact, that was the title of his life works called The Summing Up, And this is what he wrote. If death ends all, if I have neither hope for good or fear of evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And now, how in these circumstances must I conduct myself? Now the answer is plain. If there is no God. But the answer is so unpalatable that most honest people will never face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. Another writer of the 20th century, he was a Nobel Prize winner. I'd never heard of him until I began this study. His name was Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an existentialist thinker who bordered on atheism and was also a Marxist. And this is what he wrote It is true. I'd always realized it. I had no right to exist at all. I had appeared on this earth by chance alone. I exist as if I were a stone or a plant. Or maybe even a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence. And that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existence. That's the ultimate place you go if God does not Exist. So this morning, let's just quickly run through these arguments for the existence of God. I don't know if I went too far. Okay. So the first one is the origin of the universe. So I'm going to kind of go through these quickly. But science agrees that the universe had a beginning at a finite time in the past. They know this by the laws of science. The first two laws of thermodynamics shows us that our universe is not eternal. The Hubble telescope has proven that our universe is not eternal. When Hubble showed this to Einstein, he changed his math equation. He fudged his own work because he didn't like the implications that the universe had a beginning at a finite time in the past. Why is that so important? Well, we'll look at it in just a minute and explain why that is so significant. So time, space, matter, and energy came into existence instantaneously. Scientists all agree on this. The universe came into existence either from nothing, that's your option, you don't have any others. Now, there's an atheist, Richard Dawkins, And he doesn't like this sentence right here. So he's come up with a third plan. The universe came into existence from nothing or a transcendent cause who is. And we're going to look at who that transcendent cause is. But Richard Dawkins came up with this other idea. And that is that we have a multiverse. And we just happen to be one of trillions of universes. And if there's a trillion universes that have... Gone on for infinity past, we're bound to have one universe that has life. <laughs> well, yeah, if you want to play the cards that way. So you try that next time you're in a card game and you stack the deck. And every time you shuffle cards, you get four aces and you win every game. And your partner's beginning to look kind of suspicious at you and you say, Whoa, whoa what's going on here? He said, Well, I got an explanation for that. We have a plethora of universes and we just happen to be in the universe that i shuffle 52 cards and i shuffle them and i deal myself four aces every time you have a better probability of that happening than the idea of a multiverse no one has ever seen a multiverse and you don't escape the problem where did the first universe begin it's inescapable So the universe came into existence either from nothing or a transcendent cause. So this transcendent cause, transcendent. The word transcendent means you exist outside of physics and outside of space. So whatever created this universe, and there was no matter at that time, there wasn't even time at that time, if that makes any sense, God had to exist outside of it. This is exactly what the Bible tells us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed, the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So the Bible has always taught this. The transcendent God must be immaterial. We know that matter is always in a state chaos, moving toward organization to disorganization. That's a scientific fact. So, whatever transcendent cause, he has to be immaterial. And John 4.24 meets that criteria. God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship God in spirit and truth. And Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible. That is our God. Our God is is transcendent in the sense that he is immaterial. Transcendent cause must be timeless. Isaiah forty twenty eight, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, nor is there any searching of his understanding. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty seven, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath, holding you up, are the everlasting arms. The transcendent cause must be changeless. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. I like the rest of that verse too. It says, Therefore, Israel, you are not consumed. That's why we're still here today, is because of the faithfulness of God. God's changeless. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I learned it in the Old King James. The ESV brings that a little bit easier. There is no shadow due to change. Our God, who is the transcendent God, is changeless. The transcendent God must be all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17. Our Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too hard for thee. In Romans 1, 20. For the invisible things of creation, the world is clearly seen and understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So the whole world is without excuse because of our universe. Summary The origin of our universe is a strong argument for the existence of God. The universe began to exist, then it had a cause for its beginning. Aristotle came up with that one. He called God the unchangeable mover or the unmoved mover. So the universe had a beginning. If the universe began to exist, it had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause to its beginning. The cause must be a personal being who's transcendent, uncaused, who exists outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, and is all powerful. Well, you know what? The very first ber- verse of our Bible sums it all up, doesn't it? Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, time. God created all powerful the heavens, space, and the earth. God created matter. Genesis one of the most philosophical books in the entire Bible. God of the Bible is not only the most plausible explanation for the universe, I think he's the only explanation for our universe. So that's the first argument. Fine-tuning. The fine-tuning. The complex order of our world points to an intelligent designer. Or the fine-tuning of our world is based on random chance. Now, I had a classroom at... um, capstone, and I was a little bit bold, and I brought in six set of die, and I had six students come up, and I challenged them. I said, if every one of you will roll a six simultaneously, I will split my month's pay with the entire class. Oh, they were so excited, man, we're going to get to gamble and Coach Cross's Bible class today. But you know what, the chances of them running—it's it's 6 to the 6th power. I can't remember what it was, but if somebody's got your phone, you can figure that out. But I, I, I was on pretty good mathematical probability. But the mathematical probability for one protein that is needed 23 simply for a single-cell amoeba is 1 to 10 to the 40th power of that happening by random chance. It's impossible. The initial complex conditions must be met when the universe began in order to sustain life. He's a physicist. His name is Behe. I can't remember his first name. But he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And in that box, he came up, he coined a term called irreducible complexi- complexity. Irreducible complexity means that you have got to have every piece together simultaneously in order for life to exist. It's like having a camera without a lens. It doesn't function. It doesn't work. You've got to have the right gases in the atmosphere. You've got to have the exact distance from the sun. You've got to have the magnetic shield just right. You've got to have water. You've got to have soil. It all has to be there simultaneously in order for life to exist. These are called, whoops, (laughs) these are called anthropic principles. They are too nervous to even account by chance. I'll just give you a couple examples here. Protons just happen to be... 1,836 times larger than electrons. If they were a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller, we could not exist. The Earth's atmosphere, you have to have the exact right gases in the right percentages in order for life to exist on this Earth. The magnetic field, if it was just slightly weaker, we would be bombarded by cosmic rays that would obliterate the planet. Our place in the solar system. If we were one degree closer to the sun, we would fry. One degree closer, we would freeze over. And all of these things happened simultaneously. So fine-tuned for life that chance alone could never explain it. So the origin of our universe. The fine-tuning of our universe. Two ways to explain fine-tuning. Random chance. You know, we don't believe in 14.5 billion years, but even if that was true, the probability that life would evolve is zero. That's the probability. MIT has run all the numbers, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I don't remember them, so I'm not going to quote them. So, an infinite, wise, loving creator God, that's the other option. Fine-tuning cannot be due to random chance. Therefore, fine-tuning is best explained by the Creator. And I love this psalm. Psalm 139.14. My mother-in-law used to quote this because she was a little lady of stature. And we would kind of tease her for her height. And just, just she was a, she's so cute. If you've met my mother-in-law. And she would come back. She says, Patrick, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knows very well. You and I, just think about how complex the human body alone is. Objective moral values. I think this is Brother Rick's favorite argument. There is no right and wrong if there is no God. God. And yet, every culture in the world believes in universal moral values. If God does not exist, it is impossible to define objective, moral, evil, or good. If somebody tells you that is evil and there is no God, you say, that's your opinion, not mine. I think it's a wonderful thing. You couldn't even tell Adolf Hitler that he was morally wrong for what he did if there is no God this is one of the strongest reasons to believe in God the objective moral values observe universe and they do exist therefore God exists C.S. Lewis points out that those who reject absolute moral values quickly change their mind soon as these words come out of their mouth that's unfair because you're appealing to a moral standard that that person agrees with life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus Christ was so different from any other man that walked this earth. Our calendars are dated 2023 because of the entry of Jesus Christ into this world. How do you explain that? How do you explain that the Jewish people who worshiped on the Sabbath on Saturday within one generation changed their day of worship to the first day of the week because Jesus Christ rose from the dead the first day of the week. We could go on and on about the evidence for the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but first of all I want you to know that Jesus taught with authority as if he were God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would quote God from the Old Testament. And he would say things like this, "You have heard it said unto you, thou shalt not commit adultery." But then Jesus spoke as if he were God incarnate because he was. And then he would turn around and say, "But I say to you, if you lust in your heart, you've already lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery." He would then say, "You have heard that it was said to you, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, vengeance is mine." Let God repay. Then he would say things like this. You have heard that it was said of those of old, do not commit murder. And Jesus went so far to say, if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. Who could teach like that person? One time in John chapter 7, they sent people to the synagogue to arrest Jesus. The ones who were sent to arrest were so mesmerized by his teaching. They came back without him. And the Pharisees, where is Jesus? Why didn't you arrest him? You know what their answer was? No man has ever spoke like this man. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, this is what they said. The people were astonished as his teaching, for he taught them having authority. Jesus had authority to perform exorcism simply by the word. And the demonic spirits knew who he was. They came and they said, Jesus, did you come to torment us before our time? Because we know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus performed exorcism with absolute authority. Mark 1.27. What new teaching is this? For with authority he commands even unclean spirits. Now you're saying, well, Patrick, you're just quoting the Bible. New Testament scholars agree That all of these things were true about Jesus. Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water and they obey his voice. Not coming from the Bible text, but from the Qumran discovery. Jewish writings in the first century from the Essenes, who were the enemies of Jesus, wrote this about Jesus of Nazareth. He went about healing those who were diseased, performing exorcisms, and teaching like no other man. Josephus, a Jewish historian who did not convert to Christianity, Josephus writes, Jesus Christ came on this earth as if he were God. He had a large following from Galilee of the Gentiles, and many professed him to be the Christ. So the evidence just doesn't come from the Bible. Even liberal Bible scholars now all agree that Jesus was a miracle worker, that Jesus' teaching were so profound like nothing ever happened. Entered into this world. Jesus healed with absolute authority. Matthew five thirty one. I could give you hundreds of references. They marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Jesus claimed authority over the temple. He went into the temple on the Passover, and he dumped over the tables. He took whips, and he drove people out. And they said, by what authority do you do this? He called it his father's house. I wish I'd quit doing that. His father's house. Why is that significant? They picked up stones to kill Jesus in John chapter 5. And this is what he said. My father's working and I am working. The Jews took up stones to stone him. And he asked them, why do you stone me? And they said, because you called God your Father, making yourself equal with God. Jesus' authority was profound. Jesus had authority to forgive sin. The exact same thing happens in Mark chapter 2. You guys are familiar with that passage. They tore the roof off. They lower the paralytic in front of them. And Jesus looks at them and he says, your sins are forgiven. What was going on in the minds of the Pharisees? They said, this man has just blasphemed. Who has the authority to forgive sin but God alone? If Jesus were not God alone, he could not have forgiven those sins, but he did. And then he turns around and he says, so that you know that the Son of Man, that was his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. And you might think that he's claiming humanity by that. No, Jesus is referencing Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, when he calls himself the Son of Man, where all will come and worship before the Son of Man. That's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus is. So he told the paralytic, get up and walk, so that you know he had also the authority to forgive sin. Let's look at the resurrection. These are the reasons why we can trust the resurrection. Jesus was buried by two members of the Sanhedrin. Now, why is that significant? It's significant... For several reasons. One, the Sanhedrin is the council that put Jesus to death. There were a couple of members on that Sanhedrin who did not agree with it. And by stepping outside of that ruling body, they would have subjected themselves to persecution and probably death. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who Jesus called the teacher of Israel the second reason that's whoop that's I'm going to get this right before the sermon's over the reason the sanhedrin's important the second reason is Jesus's own followers were too afraid and embarrassed to take their own messiah and savior off the cross so what does it show us about the new testament writers they were not trying to cast a picture of mythology, or putting themselves in a good light, we know that what the gospel writers put was absolute, historically accurate because it paints them as cowards, as unbelievers, and ashamed to follow Jesus. But these two council members, they were both what you might call closet Christians. And when Jesus was crucified, these two men stepped up and took down the body of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea allowed Jesus to be put to death or buried him in his own tomb. The next one, Jesus' tomb had a Roman seal and a guard placed around it. Well, how does that prove the resurrection? A Roman seal would have never been broken by anyone. It was punishable by death. And so the very Sanhedrin that had Jesus crucified actually gives us one of the best defenses for the resurrection because that Roman seal ensured that no one would have touched the body of Jesus. Secondly, a Roman guard was placed around the tomb to ensure that no one came and tampered the body. We know from historical records that if a Jewish soldier allowed someone to escape while he was watching it, he was put to death. There's no way that those cowards up in the upper room that night, who wouldn't even take the body down, would come and try to break a Roman seal or break through Roman guards. And we know from Matthew's gospel that the Roman guards were paid off to say that the disciples had stolen the body and then Matthew goes and writes this at the end of his gospel. He says, and this saying is published abroad to this very day. Matthew could have never written that in his gospel if it weren't true. All you would have to do is go and check it out. A third reason. The disciples themselves did not believe the initial report. Well, how does that, again, show us that the resurrection is credible? These men didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought it was a fabrication. You remember when the women came back in Luke chapter 4 and they reported that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive? The disciples said this. Their words were like idle tales. So what was going to convince these men that there was a bodily resurrection? It had to be an appearance of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, these men lied. But who dies for a lie? Well, many people will die for a lie if they believe it's true, won't they? We see that in terrorists all the time. But no one dies for a lie when they know it's a lie that they are not going to get anything out of. In fact, why would you tell a lie that's going to bring about your very death? No one does that. So that's why it's so important to understand that the disciples did not believe the report. The resurrection appearances were varied. They didn't just happen at one time. It was different groups of people. Why is that important? it shows that the resurrection appearance were not hallucinations. They were not just the, the feelings of people who were overwhelmed with grief. The first appearances were two men on the road to Emmaus. They didn't understand. They didn't even know who Jesus was until after the appearance was over. Then Jesus appears into the upper room where many people were there. Then he appears on the Lake of Galilee where there were only four disciples. And then in the 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus appeared to over 500 brethren. Paul, writing this in 55 AD, says, and many of them are still alive to this day. Many of them, some of them have slept, he said, but many of them are still alive. So the varied and different people and different groups that Jesus appeared to shows that it was not a hallucination. The resurrection history did not develop over time. I cannot emphasize that one enough. Dr. Paul Mayer, who was authority on ancient Near Eastern religion mythology, was a professor for many, many years at Western Michigan State University. And this is what he says about the resurrection. He says, the resurrection story was so close to the actual event, it is impossible that the story was fabricated, exaggerated, or mythology. We know from the book of Acts, 50 days after the historical death of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection, they were already preaching Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Mythology never, it takes four generations for a myth to be established, the first generation sees something that's strange and, and can't be explained. They pass that on to the next generation who passes it on to the grandchildren. And then when they're all dead, the first one's dead, the fourth generation then turns that into mythology. It never happens within 50 days of an event. I can show you from Paul's writings alone that Paul was converted in 32 A.D., But speaking of Paul, the last argument, two leading proponents of the resurrection were actually opponents of Christianity. How can you explain that? People who vehemently opposed the teaching of Jesus Christ converted to Christianity. How in the world can you explain that? There's one logical explanation And that is that they saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I'm going to give you two. James, the brother of Jesus. James in John chapter 7 and his brothers, they tell Jesus to go up to Jerusalem, hoping that he's going to be put to death there. And they tell him, Jesus, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and perform all your miracles and do it up there at the feast? Nobody who does what you're doing remains in secret. And then John, the author, writes this. They said this because neither did they believe in him. In Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus' his mother and his brethren came to take him home. Why? Because they were convinced that Jesus had lost his marbles. They said, He's daft. Let's get our poor brother and let's bring him home. So the other opponent, and we all know who that was, Saul. Of Tarsus. And his testimony to the Galatians, he says, I was exceeding above many of my contemporaries in Judaism, being far more zealous of the tradition of my fathers. But God, who knew me from my mother's womb, he has called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And we know that Saul of Tarsus saw the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in 32 AD. I don't have time to run through all the references. I can quickly do it, though, so just kind of listen fast with me. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again the third day according to the Scripture. By the way, that's an Aramaic creed. Paul is quoting an already existing church document in 55 A.D. about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, you already received it. Well, when was Paul in Corinth? Paul was in Corinth in 52 A.D. How do we know that? Go to Acts chapter 18, and we are told that Gallio was the governor of Achaia. We know from Roman records that was 52 A.D. So Paul says, I'm writing the letter in 55. I already told you about the resurrection in 52 he says, I was at the Jerusalem Council. We know the Jerusalem Council was in 49 AD because of the famine that was in all of Palestine. We know that that, when that that coincided with the Jerusalem Council, so it was 49 AD. And they all talked about the resurrection. They all talked about what the gospel is in Acts chapter 15. Paul says, 15 years earlier, I was in Jerusalem. 15 years earlier than 49 A.D., so let's back that up. That's 39 minus 5, that's 34. Paul says when he was converted, he spent three years in the Arabian desert. So by that calculation alone, Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul in 31 A.D., and most historians believe that Jesus was either crucified in 29 or 30 A.D., so we know that these people who rejected the resurrection of Jesus Christ later died for something that they vehemently opposed. James, the brother of Jesus, was cast off the temple because he would not deny Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Paul was executed in 66 AD under the Roman government. And all he had to do to keep from being executed Would say there was no resurrection, none of this is true. But Paul would rather die for what he knew was true than to live for what he knew was a lie. God raised Jesus from the dead. There are seven established facts that verify Jesus' resurrection. The only plausible explanation for these facts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus validates his claims. Romans 1.4 Jesus was born physically from the seed of David. But spiritually he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can personally know the forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Christ. My fourth argument, my fifth argument is really I want want to camp out on. I was talking with another man who just loves apologetics. And he says, "Apologetics has its place. But no one is ever convinced to follow Jesus Christ by facts alone." And I know most of us here today are followers of Jesus or we believe in the resurrection. But I want to emphasize that the most sure way that you know God exists is you know that He lives in your heart. The hymn writer said this, You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. When I was 17 years old, I was reading through the New Testament. I was convinced that Jesus Christ was an incredible teacher. I was enamored that everything and everyone who came to Jesus, their lives were never the same. I was so hungry for something that was going to give me purpose. Something that was going to give me meaning. Something that made life sensible. But that's not where it stopped. When I began to read after the Gospels, I started the book of Romans. And it's then I knew that I was a sinner. That I was lost And that without Christ, I would spend an eternity in hell. And it was at that point where I personally asked Jesus to forgive me. I placed my faith. I'll never forget the verses. It was Romans chapter 10, 10 through 14. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in your heart, That Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. And how will they hear unless they be sent? And how will they be sent without a preacher? For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and proclaim good tidings of wonderful things. I remember that verse so well because at the age of 17, Ted will appreciate this, all I cared about using my feet for was getting around a 440-yard track as fast as I could possibly go. That's what I lived for. And I knew at that moment life has real significance for me and I bowed my head in my little bedroom and I put my faith in what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. I remember I was a new person. There was no fireworks. I didn't get chill bumps. The hairs didn't stand up on my arms. But I knew something had transformed. And I went to school the next day telling all of my buddies That I had become a Christian. And they thought I had really whacked out on them. I was different. I had experienced Jesus Christ. A living Savior. Who had washed away all my sin. And had given me a purpose and meaning. Beyond myself. How can you personally know God today? First of all. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says this. God has put Eternity in your hearts. God has put a vacuum there that nothing else can fill. And I exhort you today to fill that spot with Jesus Christ. God designed you for that. That's who you are. Second, sin has separated you between you and your God. You've got to accept that truth. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says this, The arm of the Lord isn't short that he can't reach you. God's ears are not heavy that he cannot hear you. But your iniquities have separated you between your God. Something has to deal with that sin barrier. Christ alone solves the dilemma Christ suffered once, we're told, to give us eternal salvation, Hebrews 10.14. Christ came, John 10.10, that you and I might have life, and that we might have it more abundantly. You don't even really know life until you know Jesus. Jesus said this in his prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 3, This is life eternal, to know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John five forty four. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who hears my words and believes on him who sent me shall not come into condemnation, but has crossed over from death into life. Faith alone in Christ's death for your sin And his resurrection is what gives you and I the hope of everlasting life. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. That's undefiled, never fades, reserved in heaven for you. You and I can be kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last day. That is our blessed hope. So I'm going to end with a prayer. And... If you're a believer today, I'm going to pray that God will give you holy boldness. That you will openly and publicly share with your friends, who might not be believers, five good reasons to believe in God. And this morning, if you came here and you may believe in God, you believe the stories about Jesus, but personally you've never came to that bridge where you say, you know what? I need to personally appropriate Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on my behalf. And I'm going to place my faith today. I'm going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was eternally God. That eternal God came in human flesh. That He suffered and that He was sin for me. That there's nothing I can do to add to His work on the cross. One sacrifice. Has perfected forever those who come to God. Hebrews ten fourteen again. So let's pray together. Father.